America fans, and welcome to this latest edition of Off Track with Carruthers and Vice. You could probably tell by the dulcet tones of my voice that I am not Carruthers, I am Vice, but I'm joined by Paul Carruthers, Communications Manager for Moto America, and I'm the sidekick in this game, and uh, we've got a guest on today, Mr. Joshua Kurt Hayes, uh, but before we bring him in, I want to ask Paul, hey Paul, I'm losing track of everything. Is Thanksgiving next week? Thanksgiving is next week, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, I got, I got to get ready for that. But I if you're in California, that. you're not allowed to eat turkey with any more than one other person. <laughs> and and it, has to be a, it has to be a sandwich. <laughs> oh yeah, and, when they, and, and by the way, when you have a sandwich that's supposedly a Thanksgiving sandwich and they put cranberry sauce on a sandwich, that's the most horrifying thing I've ever heard of. How about you? I actually really enjoy that, Sean Bice. <laughs> so, Josh Hayes, you do you like that? Ah, oh. I, I I order it when I go to McAllister's when I'm in the South. <laughs> really, any time of year, not just Thanksgiving. Yeah. Oh, no, I cannot handle fruit or anything with my regular food. That's you probably like like pineapple on pizza and my wife yeah. does. I don't yeah. particularly applesauce with pork chops. Uh, her father does that. Oh, that's I what I do. I, I don't have, uh, I, I do appreciate it. I know it's not probably my favorite. I, I don't mind it. No, it's the way to go. What I don't understand is I think uh, Turkey is extremely overrated. It's like, it if, everyone, if everyone likes Turkey so much, why do they only eat it once a year? It smells good. Yeah. Good I just it. think it's a pain in the ass. I'd rather just have it's like a steak. Dry. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather have a steak. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree with that. So we got Josh Hayes on here after a pretty successful year for Josh without actually, well, he did race early in the season, uh, early in the year in in Australia, but, um, you know, you had to do with a lot of success this year on the track. Uh, Certainly Cam Peterson with his championship, but I think you work with Richie Escalante a little bit too. And um, a few other writers, Kevin Almeida, obviously Garrett Gerloff, who's just going nuts these days. So, um, Josh, you must be feeling pretty good about your skills, not only behind the handlebars, but, uh, when other people are, be- are behind the handlebars, how's that going for you? I don't know if it's skills or I was just smart and picked guys who were winners from the get go, you know? So <laughs> well, that's a good way to do it. Too. That's a good way to do it. <laughs> I guess it's how you look at it. I think I picked winners to work with in the beginning, you know, and you know, the, the thing about working with the guys at, at that level is I'm pretty lucky because there's not a lot about riding a motorcycle that they don't already have figured out. And it feel it seems like I'm more of a psychologist than most of any, much of anything else. And just helping them, you know, I, I, I think that the best description would be, I, I try to maintain helping them keep their eye on the ball. Yeah. And I mean, the thing, and I did, I failed to mention Bobby Fong, uh, who was a three-time Superbike winner this year, which was fantastic too. So that's another one to add to your success. The thing that's interesting, Josh, is, is Bob, Bob, Bobby Fong is quite different from Cam Peterson, quite different from Garrett. Um, Richie, you know, obviously there's a little bit of, uh, lost in translation there, but he obviously has his own style too. Um, would you say these riders are all pretty different from each other? (laughs) Yeah. Each one's unique. Every yeah. single one of them is unique. And, uh, 
yeah, they're all looking for something a little different, you know, and it seems like there are a lot of the top guys that I've kind of had my hands in in some way or another, a small bit, you know, Richie's work this year was Richie's work. I really, other than a, a few, you know, like we're, we're still friendly and I worked with him a lot last year when he was doing the Hudson deal, Hudson program. And, um, this year, other than a few, you know, he's, he came over and said hi and a few kind words my way. And, and, uh, it was nice to hear him say, Hey, thank you. The stuff you, we worked on last year or playing a big role this year. It was nice to hear. And he's just a, a classy guy, you know? Um, but his needs were definitely different from those of Bob and Cameron Peterson's a fairly unique situation where, what he does on a motorcycle, I think his, his natural aptitude and talent is just pretty strong and he needs something that just, sometimes he just needs ideas, you know, with him, I can just kind of watch and say, Hey, I see this thing and maybe try this and maybe it'll help. And it's, it's uncanny how often it can work, but it's also pretty incredible to watch a guy who can visualize it and then go out and just make it happen and never take a step backwards in the process, you know? So it's pretty cool to see that. And then just talking about some focus things and then, uh, you know, on, on Matt Sculpt's side with the Westby crew, uh, it's, it's almost more being a part of the crew than it is so much that I, I do a lot of spotting for Matt, but Matt's, Matt's, he's uh, how would I put it? He's a man's man. He kind of keeps and, and keeps his program pretty tight and to himself and does his own things. And, we discuss the things that I see on the racetrack and we kind of leave it alone after that. So otherwise I'm working with Ed and Herschel and Chuck and sometimes I'm just helping them break down what we think he's trying to explain and figure out how to work it, you know, so it's more of an integrated piece of the race team than anything. So, and uh, yeah, you know, then, then you, you get into a handful of other guys who are still trying to figure it out and just break things down about the racetrack and things like that. And, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning a lot of uh, what to look for from the side of the racetrack and, and how to visualize and how to communicate what I'm seeing. That stuff's getting better all the time, as much as I hate being on the side of the racetrack. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I feel pretty good about how, how all of my guys have done. It's difficult where, uh, where I'm sitting because I don't know that I can take much credit because you know, I've been doing this a long time and I know that you can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink kind of thing. And all those guys and the success they're having is definitely because of their work, not mine. And, uh, I just try to point them in a good direction so that they can get the best out of themselves. It must be, it must be kind of fun when you actually have, um, I think like a younger guy, maybe a less experienced guy. And, and I'm, I'm speaking of Kevin Almedo cause I know you worked with him this year for the first time, I believe. Um, he, he kind of reminds me of Richie in a way like Richie two years ago where, where you just, I always get the feeling when I'm watching him, I'm I'm like, Oh man, he's over his head and he's going to (laughs) crash. And, and, and sometimes he does, doesn't. And sometimes he does, but I kind of remember Richie being like that too. And I remember there, there always seems to be guys that are like that. Like they, they're, they go over their head to match the leader's pace when they're just not quite ready, but then the next year you notice them at the leader's pace and they're comfortable with it. Is that kind of how it works? I have a huge respect and appreciation for someone who will ride like that because it's not an easy thing to do. 
but it's so much fun to watch a rider who you can see the desire to succeed in them when they ride a motorcycle. And, um, you know, even, even Bobby, I feel like I see a lot of that. It's not, it's not just precision. He, he, you can see the heart in Bobby that he's going for, he's putting everything he's got out there. And you see that a lot with Kevin. And you know, honestly, I didn't work with Kevin a whole lot. Kevin spent some time with us here with the family, staying at the house. And, you know, I talk and, and would point out a thing or two here and there, but I, I had so many things going on actually that, that Kevin as big a fan as I am of Kevin. I didn't, I wasn't able to give him a whole lot of time and input, but, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And, uh, you know, Melissa was, Melissa marked him quite a while back when he was on junior cup and was like, that's a guy I would really like to work with, you know? And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, her and I kind of see the same things that I, you talk about any minute he could crash. And I, I feel like any minute is this breakthrough performance is just going to take his confidence to the next level. And then it's going to be like, stand back and watch and watch out boys. Here he comes. So will you continue? I mean, do you think you'll work with him more as we go forward? And also, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's probably an easier thing to get a guy to slow down a little bit than a guy that's not willing to go the pace. Always. Always going to be easier to back people up a touch so that they can acquire a skill or whatever it is and then move forward with it. It's always going to be difficult because this is such a risk-based business that, you know, if somebody's mitigating risk, how do you tell them, you know, like, hey, you're going to have to try harder. You know, I need to see. It's never easy to go that direction. It's always easier to go, hey, 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 whoa, you're going to do this till you get hurt. So let me help you do it the right way so that maybe you don't get hurt. <laughs> and um, that's, that's an easier thing to figure out and point out. When it's the other way, you know, it's hard to explain because I had, I mean, I, I don't know what it looked like from the outside, but I wanted to win more than I wanted the air I could breathe. And I, I just, I was willing to risk so much to make it. And the, I just had to go at it with this with this wrecking ball and hope that I made it before I killed myself <laughs> and, and fortunately succeeded. And there were, and there were so many times in my career where I kind of had to go through something like that. I remember John Ulrich calling me and saying, if you crash another bike, you're out of a job. And I'm like, if I go slow, he's not going to give me a job anyway. So you just go at it with reckless abandon anyway and hope that you that you succeed before the guy fires you. It was it was all or nothing. You know, there right. wasn't I didn't know how to go faster without trying harder. So it was all I had. And uh, so you know, I, I can remember uh, in my in 2006 at Mid Ohio racing Eric Bostrom for the Formula Extreme Championship, and it came down to it was our second time at Mid Ohio that year. Eric had beat me the time before. It was the last race of the year and whoever beat the other one won the championship and i looked at melissa on the grid and i go hey honey like i need you to know this i will not ride this bike home in second place wow <laughs> you know like that's I, I, so it was a long race for her i bet <laughs> and i led i led every lap at a plus zero until like two laps to go where i finally got a little bit of space on him you know but 
it was, uh, you that know. That was truly win it or bin it then. With, with ab- it. Absolutely. And I meant it. You know, that was the scariest part was I meant it. So, I mean, I, I have a huge appreciation and I can understand and I know how to help someone who's in that position. And uh, so, yeah, you know, like it's always going to be fun. Kevin is a, is a fantastic young man to work around. He's gracious and appreciative and, and wants it very, very badly and is willing to do whatever it takes to get there. So, of course, that's always fun to be around and something that I hope that uh, we can sort out and I can do some more stuff with. Does anything get lost in translation with him or, or Richie, Josh? I mean, obviously, their English is a second language for them. And I know you have said, you know, the thing I love most about Kevin is he's always got a smile on his face. But you were saying one of the reasons he does that is because he doesn't always understand everything that people are saying to him. So he figures if he smiles. Does he get what you're saying? Uh, m- most of the time I've, I've learned to ask the question, you know, I've learned to go, Hey, do you understand everything I've said here? And you'll say yes. Or he'll be like, eh, and we'll go through it again. It takes a bit of patience, you know? And, uh, you know, one thing that's, that's really helped me in communicating with guys like that is being married because I learned that you can't just say the same thing louder and get a different result. You actually have to say something different. So <laughs> I've got a bit more patience and I come at it from a little different angle if I can. Good point. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, we're constantly doing social media during the week and I'm always on Brian J's website, looking at photos of this, that, and the other thing. And there's a couple of photos from the final round at uh, Laguna Seca when uh, Nicola Canepa was racing for Westby in place of the injured Matthew Skoltz. And you're on the starting line and you're standing next to him and you're kind of looking down the road. And I, it looks I if I captioned, I would say it's, you know, see the future, be the future, but I'm sure that's how you say it to him. So what do you say to a guy like Canepa who is, you know, a Yamaha test rider and endurance rider, like you've been an endurance rider internationally as well. But you know, what do you, what are you saying to a guy like that on the starting grid? Heck, I don't remember what I said to him. In particular. You remind him the first turn goes left. Yeah, That's what it looked yeah. like. <laughs> um, you know, we, we were probably discussing a couple of the riders in front of him and where the start lights were, you know, a, a few ideas of how to approach and where to be and positioning and things like that with, with Nicolo. You know, I don't have a – he and I are friends. We've known each other for quite a few years and, and been cordial with one another. He's helping Garrett over there doing spotting for the team over there right. with Garrett the way I have been doing here. And, um, and then, you know, of course he's a a very fast rider in his own right. He's, he's always tested quite well on their bikes. He's winning races on, on uh, the Yart endurance Yamahas and, and raced in MotoGP raced, you know, world Superbike, uh, the Moto E, you know, he's involved in so many of those things that, you know, it, but for him, again, it was just uh, basically a spotter and a friend on the grid to encourage you and say, hey, man, you're going to be all right. These are the guys that, are, you know, these are their strengths. These are their weaknesses. And here's what, what you can go out there and kind of look forward to or look, look, look for when you get out there, you know, and just pass along different things like that. Now, if it's Bobby or one of these young guys, you know, even Melissa, usually if I was looking up the front of the racetrack like that, Corey Ventura or somebody sitting there I would just look at him and go hey man everything you want in this world is that way so you better go up there and get it (laughs) 
You know, it's funny. Paul did, recently did a little interview with Corey Ventura, and he was talking about he. You must have done like an AFM or something, and he, you beat him and, or something. And but he of was course I did. It gave him a lot of incentive <laughs> to try to do better. So talk about that. Yeah, during you know with all the COVID stuff and everything, and uh, at the time after Daytona got postponed in March, you know this year they had pushed it back to the end of the year. Nobody had been on motorcycles very much. And man, when we showed up in Daytona, I had gotten to race the classic race. I had gotten to race back in Australia and Superbike. And then I'd gone to the barber test. And when I got to Daytona, I was, I was feeling pretty sharp. I was starting to feel like the old Josh, you know, and lap times were coming really well. Everything was happening. And so I felt sharp and good on the motorcycle. And then we hit just a standstill, you know, COVID happens and it's months at home with nothing happening. So there was a, an AFM race in the middle of the season after we had raced at road America a couple of times. And, uh, we had our 600 just kind of mothballed to the side and we knew that, that, you know, the 200 was coming at the end of the season at the time still. And I wanted to stay sharp. Melissa wanted to ride her R1 a little bit. And so we took the opportunity to go out to an AFM race. I also found a few guys that I could coach while I was there and uh, but I was looking forward to it and I just signed up for Formula Pacific on our 600 and uh, just took our Moto America uh, spec engine that we had in it and put it back in the bike and just wanted to stay sharp and and ride my motorcycle a little bit so I gritted up and did that and of course Corey did all the AFM stuff and and I think he was pretty dominant in all the 600 races and punched above his weight in, in the formula Pacific a little bit, but I managed to get the best of him that weekend. <laughs> Old dog still to... got a few tricks under up his sleeves. Yeah. You cherry picker. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, Garrett and Cameron. Um, okay. Obviously Moto America has gotten a huge lot of a, a huge amount of attention because of those two guys and their recent, the, the, the things they've been doing recently, obviously with Cameron signing to go to Moto two and then um, Garrett doing so well at the end of his debut rookie uh, debut season of world Superbike racing. And then also what he did riding Valentino Rossi's bike for a day there in, in Catalonia. Um, what, you you nobody would know more than you about what Garrett had to have been going through when he's throwing his leg over that MotoGP bike for the first time. You got to do it several years ago. You also did really well. I mean, you had to have been feeling something for that kid and and what he and how excited he was and what a great opportunity it was and how well he handled it. Yeah, I mean, the hardest part I think for him, I, I think harder than riding the bike for him was the fact that he was there for two days prior and he had leathers and he had everything there and he actually didn't know if he was going to get to ride until the very last minute. Mm -hmm. And I mean the very last minute. So then the garage door opens and it's pissing rain and 50 photographers are there taking your picture because you're filling in for Valentino, right? Like that had to be pretty overwhelming. So now you're going to go ride a track. You don't know on a MotoGP bike that you've never ridden on, on Michelin's that you've never been on in the pouring rain. And everybody scares the hell out of you because they all hate that track in the rain. But for us, we're like, well, shit, I've never, owned, I, I've only ridden probably two tracks in my life that have one surface when it rains. Usually there's 
you know, you're dodging sealer and you're changing onto concrete and onto pavement again, or different kinds of pavement. So it was pretty much a dream for me, but you know, he went out there and just kind of went to work only to find out that after sitting out the first day, Valentino gets his bike back on Saturday. So right. it, all of it had to be pretty crazy for Garrett, but um, you know, one thing he's done is maintain such a, a cool head and good attitude through all of it. And, and I mean, you know, everything from that, that first race at, at Magna Corps, having the drama with, with Tom and Eugene in the first turn and that carrying over for quite a while. And, you know, following up your first strong performance and podium finish and then having to, having to come up with the goods again. And so, I mean, it's been kind of a bit of a whirlwind for that guy and he's been able to keep his head pretty level and stay focused and on task. And then he shows up here at this, at this most recent test and gets to try a little bit of everything new and kind of go back to a track where he had ridden when he was struggling quite a bit more with the team and then put on another good performance. And so, you know, I said it when, when Garrett was in Moto America that, you know, he gets, he gets his first taste of success in the books and, and he never, he doesn't really back up too far. That's kind of where his new level stays. And, He's uh, just proven it all over again. You know, he gets on the podium and now all of a sudden he's going to be a consistent front runner close to that podium. And if he gets a race win in the books, it's going to be watch out because I think he, he could start steamrolling those things with a little bit of confidence and he's getting closer and closer every day. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to good things and I'm enjoying keeping, keeping in touch with him and, and he and I text back and forth quite a bit and, it was pretty funny. I think, I think probably the, you know, the one thing I really pushed him on really early last season was, Hey, if you, if you legitimately want to be in world Superbike, you need to go to one of their races and you need to tell them to their face. You don't need to wait till they come here. You need to go there and say, listen, I flew over here to watch this and be a part of it and be around this because this is where I want to be. And I, th I think that's critically important. And, and so he did, he went to Magna Corps, he went to France last year and ended up signing the deal, you know, and getting the deal done while he was there. And now he's in world Superbike. And I was texting with him in the morning after he had ridden or in the afternoon, I guess, even after he had ridden Valentino's bike. And I said, man, aren't you glad you went to France? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was like, it's crazy how that one decision has just steamrolled so many amazing things in my life in such a short time, you know? Right. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so pumped that, that he had, that he, he was, he was brave enough to give it a shot, you know, it, cause it was a high risk deal, you know, to go over there and, and see what would happen because we've seen a lot of guys go over there and struggle. And so right. I'm, I'm just, I'm pumped that he's, he has uh, embraced every, bit of it the lifestyle living in spain uh training with the people there and just in in complete building a new family and, and just engulfing himself in the whole motorsports uh atmosphere and attitude and lifestyle there in spain and and becoming one of them because that's the only thing that's gonna give him a lot of opportunities there and, and keep him there for a long time winning you know for us back here okay that brings us to cameron what what do you think 
I have a theory. I, I just think he got to the point where he had such an outstanding year. He's riding better than he ever has. He's got more confidence than he ever has. And I think something just inside of him said, you know, like now's the time. Do you, do you think that's what happened there with the Moto2 thing? I don't know. I mean, probably. I mean, we, we talk, we, you know, Cameron and I have had a lot of conversations over the years and, and a lot this year, he talked to me a bit whenever, you know, some of these things were on the table. And I kind of, I had said the same thing to him plenty of times that I said to Garrett, like, dude, if you want to do this, you need to get over there and let them know because, you know, your management team talks to them and all that stuff's great. But, you know, at the end of the year, at the last race of the year, half the BSB paddock goes to the last races and they're all standing there going, Hey, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm right. ready to go. And we're all over here calling them on the phone being like, Hey guys, I'm over here too. And, and it's just a little different when you're in front of their face, they need to meet you. I'm like, Cameron, you're a likable guy, you know, go over there and shake their hands and say hi and talk to them. And maybe more things will happen the way that you want them to be because I think it was hard for him. He's a homebody and he wanted to stick around and he likes being here with his family and his friends and living his life and all that stuff. But I can tell you from a little bit of experience and in, in one of the things that we talked about was that it gets harder and harder to push at the level that he's pushing. If there's not a next level for you, if you're not working to get somewhere else and you know, I, I, it's astounding that, that, you know, Mark Marquez can do what he does because there is no next level. And, and how do you stay motivated day in and day out to beat the same people you've beaten so many times before? And, and like, not to speak like in an arrogant way, but it's difficult because you, you have to believe in yourself like so much and believe that those guys can't beat you to be able to manage all of the hard days, the good days, the bad days, the little bit of everything and be ready to go when things aren't going perfectly and you need to pull off something. You got to believe that it's because you're better than those guys is why you can do that. And so eventually what happens is some young hotshot like Cameron was to me comes along and shows some incredible speed and starts to beat on you a little bit, but you're not, you're still competitive. So it's hard to go home and reinvent yourself after a decade to start doing things differently and come up with a new plan to beat the same people over again. Right. You know, someone that you've already beaten before. And so let's just say as an example with Bobby or Cam Peterson starts getting in there and taking wins away from it and regularly heads up. It's hard to go home and just decide you're going to train harder and do all this stuff. If you're still competitive you just go, well, I'm just going to ride better this time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a different game plan. It's, it's hard to completely reinvent yourself and go back to pushing at the very top level and pushing your own limits further and further out there. And so I think that this, this was a necessary evil for him um, to give him himself options in racing for the foreseeable future and, uh, and continue to, take his own personal level and test it and push it forward. And I mean, sure, we'd like to see him in GP rather than Moto2. And it's going to be scary going in there at 27 years old in, in a, a class full of ax murderers. But I don't think that there is, uh, honestly, from our pack, I, I don't know that there's a better per person 
a person more prepared for it than, than Cameron. I think he's going to pass with flying colors personally. Josh, this is uh, quite, so you, you had Cameron as a teammate and when he came into the team, this is going to take a lot of introspection, but I think you have a lot of that. So I think you can probably answer this question. You, as your career was, was continuing and you were still having a lot of success. Did you, you were see saying something dwindling. Cameron, what's that? <laughs> You were going to say dwindling. I no, no, that. I wasn't. I wasn't. But it, I don't even, I'm he was. He was. I know he no, was. I wasn't because I, I'm not even talking about dwindling now. But did you feel like you said you have to go back and reinvent yourself? Did you feel like you saw any something in Cameron? And did you feel almost like you were holding him at arm's length for a while, or you, you were only holding him back for going to be able to hold him back for a certain amount of time? Did you see something in him where he was going to be like? you know, snatch the pebble from the hand, so to speak, as they say in Kung Fu? Um, no, not so much. Not okay. so much. I, you know, I, I had a, the group of people before me, you know, there was a, a lot of, uh, I don't know if the word's angst, but there was a lot of, you know, your competitors, you weren't friends with your competitors. You know, right. you were, everybody was out to get everybody else because, everybody had to be a, a macho man and show them, you know, who was what. And I, I didn't really think that was the case because I, I would race you in my backyard for, for a drink, you know, for a trophy as hard as I would for a national superbike race. It didn't matter. I hated to lose no matter what we were doing. And I, I told, you know, I was pretty straight with Cameron. I, I said, I'll help you with anything, but I, you know, when we're on the racetrack, I'll race you to the absolute, best of my ability i will never give you a free one if you go, if you beat me you want it you earned it every single time and but for sure i i i saw things in cameron and i knew i mean dude when he when he ran the table almost gagne got that one race from him in what 2000 and was it 13 13 super yep. america i mean it was it was pretty obvious to see and to watch him ride. And I remember we got the test at the end of the year at new Orleans on, on like the Monday after, and we had some, some journalists ride the superbike. I was testing some new superbike parts and uh, Cameron was there riding a 600 and uh, at the end of 2012, I think. And I followed him around on, I was on the superbike. He was on the 600. It, and I, I remember watching him, he got into this spot a little hot and I, sh I saw his little shoulders kind of shrug up a little tight and I go, Oh, there it is. I finally saw it. You know, like I finally saw him do something that got tight and we got him to pucker a little bit, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, when he got on the superbike, I got to see it a few more times, but when he was good, he was freaking amazing. And when he wasn't amazing, he was still there in the fight every single time. And so I knew it was going to be tough. And, uh, then we we got to 2015 and you know that was probably the the best real real battle i took to him was 2015 and we were fortunate that we were able to kind of sweep the table that year and i won 10 races to his eight and he won the championship and then 2016 he kind of started to stretch things out a little bit on me and and beat me up a little bit and this is where that experience comes that i talk about you know what i mean that that I didn't go back and, and reinvent myself the way I had done before whenever I'd been put into a, a difficult situation after having the crazy success that I had through, you know, 
2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, where things were really going my way. 15 was still pretty good. And there I had five or six really solid years under my belt. And then this kid starts coming and beating up on me. And in 2013, when I got beat up on, I went back and hunkered down and I did more work than I had ever done. And I showed up ready to kill in 2012. And I just, I just said, well, I just got a little work to do and, and just tried to grip the bars a little tighter and force things a little more. And I was still competitive. I still won some races, but I wasn't the guy I was before. And then, you know, 2017, it just got worse because I kind of knew my future and uh, it just, I let it, I let it do my head in. I wish I could right the wrongs of that year and go back and, and have that one over again. Cause I think I could do better stuff than what I did, but you know. Yeah. But Josh, here's the thing I want to ask you about. And this is a weird deal. We've talked about this before, but the fact that you, you know, what, what turned out to be a year that ended in you not racing for Yamaha anymore. It was a year that most riders would absolutely dream to have being ranked where you were ranked and, and doing what you did. I think you still won a couple of races that year and it was kind of weird. And I mean, you always said, you know, not, you know, you're going to have to pry the bike from my, my <laughs> fingers. So I want to ask you the perspective I want to know here is you didn't say, okay, so Yamaha is done with me. I want to go and race for somebody else. So you got Tony Elias this year who isn't done either. And has said he has, isn't going to retire but he said he doesn't want it. He's not going to ride the Suzuki anymore. He wants to try something else out. Do you think he's going to get another ride? And do you have any thoughts about what might happen with him at this point? I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know what options he really has. You know, right. I, I got an idea of a few of the things that are going on out there, at least where things are leaning. And, and I haven't heard his name involved in much of any of them. So, right. I mean, nothing I'm close to or involved with. Do I know anything about it? I mean, I don't know. I, I figured Tony's got connections all over the world. I know he likes it here. I know he wants to be here and he kind of dabbled in, in supporting teams uh, the way that him and his father kind of did with Honos, you know, at right. some, some parts of the year and with some different riders and different classes. So I, I don't really know what his plan is or, or what he's, talking about you know but whatever it is i mean if the guy wants to go racing i mean maybe i would imagine that guy's been racing his whole life like he's been racing longer than i have right. even though i'm older than him he started a lot younger and it's in his blood and hell i still don't want to quit you know shit i still <laughs> wish they let me out there I'll, I'll be a 46 year old superbike star give me a chance let me put my mind to it with the lessons I've learned over the last couple of years sitting on the sidelines. And I think I could still be a formidable opponent and be very, very dangerous out there. And, uh, but you know, one thing that happened whenever I was getting out was there wasn't real, I, I had not made real talks otherwise. And I wasn't real thrilled with the idea of going out there and racing against what I felt like was my team, right. <laughs> you know, the Yamaha right. team. So it, yeah, I wanted to race, but at what expense, honestly? And I was already in my 40s. I, that was 42 years old. So, I mean, I I had said out loud for a lot of years that if I made it to 40, man, that would be quite an accomplishment and, and a career I would be proud of. And I made it to 42 racing competitively. And I think it would have gone on longer 
had the team not shrank from a four rider team to a three rider team. So, I mean, look at the, the writing on the wall and where it went from there. It went from, from four to three and the next year, JD beach wins the super sport championship and ends up without a ride at Yamaha. Right. right. So, I mean, I wasn't alone. I, I didn't get singled out. It was just, man, it was the economy of the times, you know, and I managed to find a way to survive and still be around my racing family, which was incredibly important to me, but yeah. And still be aligned with the Yamaha brand too, which, you know, that's, yeah, that's the yeah, situation. Too. Tony, he kind of walked away from Suzuki that you didn't do that and still haven't done that with Yamaha. Well, there's still blue Yamaha blue blood in my <laughs> veins, you know? And, uh, but I, I'm, I'm lucky that I have that because it, that relationship has, is, you know, we were mutually beneficial for one another and I want my son to be involved in racing and, or, or riding. My, my wife is so involved with it that, you know, like you gotta be, you gotta use half a brain and we all want to continue to work together. So, you know, I, I, would I trade all of that for maybe another year of racing? I don't know that I would, you know, as much as I want to be racing at the same time, your decisions start changing a little bit when you're talking about, would I give it all up for one more year? I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I would as much as I want that year to happen. You know, I like riding motorcycles and, and uh, being around motorcycles for the rest of my life is important to me too. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this Yamaha blue running through your veins because something <sighs> happened this week that I wanted to get your reaction to. So Yamaha's had a 600 CC, uh, sport bike since about 1984 when they came out with the FJ 600 and it, it went through the FCR, obviously the R6 debuted in 1999 and there's been various iterations that, and in a little footnote at the bottom of a press release announcing new models for this year, they mentioned, Oh, and by the way, we're, we're not going to be, we've discontinued the R6 in America for 2021. And we've heard about this race R6 in Europe or wherever, but First of all, did that, did that shock you that they kind of just said the heck with the a 600 middleweight bike? And what do you think that is going to mean to Supersport in general? I mean, obviously, Kawasaki won the championship this year, and, and Suzuki was strong with Sean Dillon Kelly as well. But, you know, Yamaha was right there. So, you know, what does this bode for the future of Supersport and also about Yamaha kind of getting rid of a middleweight bike? Um. Man, first I was heartbroken. Yeah, heartbroken. you love that bike. I'm, I'm, I've been a, a firm believer in middleweight super sport racing. You know, that's where I started, and so I, it holds a special place in my heart for sure. And I, my, me racing Melissa's MP13 racing R6 last year was some of the most fun I've had on a motorcycle, even, even over the super bike, the end of the, the last super bike years. I just absolutely love everything about riding that motorcycle. It's so much fun. And in some ways, I think it's the most pure racing that there is. There's not much electronics and just their bikes that you can absolutely grind on and learn a lot about good racing. And so I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the segment. And it breaks my heart. Now, this all started, I think, when Honda decided not to sell a 600 in Europe a couple of years ago. That's right. And I thought that was the first step, you know. 
I didn't know Yamaha would be the next company to really jump in and go that direction. And uh, for sure, for sure, it makes me sad. But I think there was some other, some other stuff written in there that was a little on the vague side that there's possibly some new stuff coming. And uh, I'm hoping that's the case and that they, they find another way to fill that segment because I think the R3 uh, jump in the super sport category to the R1 is a bit of a big one. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. But you know, the R1 is their flagship bike. And, and I think it, you know, when we, when we looked at it, you know, cause Melissa has gone through the math quite a few times, you know, right now, if, if you were going to go racing and you were new to our series, the, the stock thousand is the most economical way to go racing and super sport was considerably more expensive to go racing than, than, uh, some of the other, most, uh, all of the other support classes. So mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that, uh, you know, again, sign of the times that the, the development costs in the 600s were, were near matching that of the, of the 1000 and uh, the insurance and a little bit of everything across the board. So I don't know. There's not, not been any real updates in 600s in quite some time. True. And uh, so I, I guess the writing was kind of on the wall. And it looks like now, even in the world championship, they're going to start uh, kind of some experimentation uh, with bigger bikes that are, that are now what they're considering middleweights and allowing them into the class with some performance, uh, performance leveling, you know, the way they have in junior cup. And I mean, we've seen it before we went through it with Daytona sport bike. And uh, so maybe, maybe that's what's coming in the future or, uh, or things are just going to, you know, it's hard when, cause the waters just get muddied and it probably gets hard. If they would all stick to 600s, it would be one thing, but then one guy comes out with a 636 and only right. off that in certain countries. And then it, all the fun kind of gets taken out of the racing and the reason to do all the development on your 600 kind of goes out the window. So um, if you're going to allow bigger bikes in the class, it makes it hard to, to fight so hard for that one. So it's a bit, I mean, of, a mess. bit of a mess. Super sport this season though was so good. I mean, it was obviously the best class we had in terms of competitiveness. Every one of those races was fantastic to watch. So it's just kind of ironic that this situation with, I know you'd mentioned about Honda and then with Yamaha, but you know, Yamaha still did, did well this year, but you know, like I said, Suzuki and Kawasaki were right up there and, and, and that class produces some such amazing racing, as you said. And, and I know it's near to, near to your heart, plus the fact that I know you like riding the R6 quite a bit. So It is. And I still, I mean, I'm, I'm still a believer that it is the, the number one choice for me as far as grooming people to be ready to race in Superbike and things like that. Like I, you know, I'm a big believer in the super, super sport class and, mm -hmm. You know, when, when people say, hey, you know, we were thinking of jumping Twins Cup or Junior Cup to Stock Thousand, I can understand it from the economical side. But if you really want to make it forward, I, I felt like the 600 was the way to go because it was just, it, it has always offered such good racing. I mean, as long as I've been involved in racing, 600 Supersport was where it was at. That's why they always sent their Superbike riders down to ride in Supersport back when we didn't race twice a weekend every single weekend you know back in the day all the superbike riders were a part of the super sport class also because selling 600s was so important to the companies but i think now it's just that the development costs are so high 
the performance level is so high of those super sport 600s and they're looking to do things in slightly more affordable ways to introduce more people to the sport so josh i know we can with you we can always go we heck we could go another couple hours probably on this but i think we're going to wrap it up now um paul did you have any other anything else josh oh again just thanks for always joining us josh when we when we need you to it's uh it's always good to speak with you and you always, you're always up for a good podcast. So thanks for, uh, thanks for being here today. Cool, man. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Mm. Let me know when you got something cool to talk about again. All right. We thank you. Cool. And we'll, and you always have some good responses, Josh. So thank you. And I want to also thank the fans for listening to this podcast. Uh, right now during this off season, there's not any racing going on, but there still is a lot of racing that you can watch via uh, Moto America's YouTube channel. So please subscribe to that channel. And there's a lot of races that we're loading up on there and they've been very popular. A lot of people are enjoying watching some of these previous years. We did a lot of stuff recently where we loaded 2017 season on there and got to see Josh Hayes back in his heyday a little bit racing with uh, all the boys, Roger Hayden and everybody else. So, um, you know, please keep uh, subscribing to that and watching that stuff for, and before you know it, the actual racing is going to begin again. 2021. So thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, Sean.